Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fern Line, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. Each episode, I talk with alpinists, outdoor adventurers, and all-around amazing folks who are doing great things in the mountains and beyond. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with extraordinary people, the folks who choose to live full-value lifestyles in some of the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. All right, well, it's great to be back with you for another episode of The Fern Line. I want to thank all of you for continuing to listen and engage with the show over all these years. And I want to give a big thanks to all the folks who've supported the show on Patreon through making a donation, leaving positive reviews, buying merchandise, or listening and sharing my music. Thanks so much for all the support over all these years. I couldn't have shared these stories without your enduring support. All right, so with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and kick back on your couch, camp chair, or frigid ice cave bivy snuggled up to your partner in a shared soggy sleeping bag and settle in for this episode of The Fern Line. just a few notes before we dive into the episode. If you haven't already listened to the episode, See You Soon, from season four, I'd suggest doing that before you listen to this one. It'll make the ending of this story all the more meaningful. Also, this story is told and narrated by August Franzen, but you'll occasionally hear field recordings from the actual climb that are interspersed throughout the episode. The voice you'll mostly hear on those recordings is Clint Helander. Bagaya, Mount Hunter. At 14,537 feet tall, a massif that is dominated in scale by its neighbors Sultana and Denali, but a mountain that dominates the minds and hearts of many a mountaineer. And this was the case for Alaskan alpinist Clint Helander in the spring of 2021, when on a hunch, he called August Franzen, a young Alaskan climber who'd been making a name for himself on the frozen waterfalls of Valdez with a proposition to attempt a monolithic line on the unclimbed west buttress of Mount Hunter. Franzen agreed instantly, and in May of 2021, the duo flew into Denali Base Camp. The route, which starts with a nine-mile ski from Denali Base Camp, weaves its way up through the broken labyrinth of the Raman Icefall, up to a dicey corniced ridge, then through a plumb line up the golden granite buttress before finally topping out on a plateau below the south summit. But on that first trip, many lessons had to be learned. First, Helander took a 30-foot crevasse fall in the icefall. Able to extract himself, the team was shaken but continued on. 19 hours later, they shivered through a miserable night a few pitches up the crux buttress, a lone, soggy sleeping bag shared between them. Mentally and physically exhausted, they retreated the next morning. But as they took the edge off with whiskey and base camp a day later, the duo made a pact. They would return to finish the west buttress. 
A year later, they did exactly that. And on May 7, 2022, they flew into Denali Base Camp again, this time with earned wisdom on their side and a steely resolve to see things through. So May 7th this year, Clint and I flew into base camp with a less than inspiring weather window, and we got sucked into the relentless base camp hang for about a week of just pure procrastination. During our stumbles around base camp, we ran into Eric Poor and Michael Bryan, a couple of Colorado skiers who planned to ski the Raman Kular. It just so happened they would have to approach via the Raman Ice Fall to access their Kular, just like us. So Clint and I joined forces with the Colorado Bros, taking advantage of a mediocre weather day to force a path through the Jumble Ice Fall as a team of four. We spent the entire day weaving around tracks, hopping over crevasses, scouting snow bridges, and, and placing wands to mark our path in a visual way out. 18 miles of glacier went underfoot that day and left us with a ski track all the way from base camp through the wicked ice falling back. Every step that day was worth it for the tremendous advantage that it gave both teams. Back in base camp, we sorted, packed, and repacked gear. We planned on four days of food and fuel, nothing more, nothing less. Then we watched and waited. Days and days of clouds and snow wafted in and out, just smothering Mount Hunter while we patiently waited for the weather break. On our planned departure day from the base camp vortex, we brushed frost off the sleeping bags and and just poked out the vestibule. Outside was that disorientating white ping pong ball that you just grow way too familiar with while you fester around Denali base camp. It was all too easy and made sense really to just re-zip the tent and settle back into the cozy sleeping bags. A couple hours later, some shuffling bags and a swift kick from Clint wakes me up and he says it's looking good out there. This time, it was real. After our final decent breakfast, we clicked into skis, shouldered packs, and followed our tracks down Heartbreak Hill before base camp was even awake. Miles of glacier went underfoot as we seemed to only make inches of progress around Mount Hunter. After nine miles of flat glacier travel, the Raman Valley opens up and, and the west buttress profile just shoots up into the sky. The jumbled icefall spills into the Kihiltna, guarding the Raman Valley, where the climb begins. And in this valley, alpine walls soar thousands of feet directly into this band of teetering racks. All these lethal, unstable blocks of ice rim the entire valley like, like salt on a margarita glass. On the right side, the enormous west buttress stares us down and drops into the sharp corniced ridge that snakes down some thousand feet and spans into the broad apron of bulletproof alpine ice. Even from our position here on the Kihiltna Glacier, 
the elusive south summit of Mount Hunter is still out of view. A full three days of climbing will pass before we even see it. Our ski tracks disappear into the chaos of icefall, snaking through looming seracs, teetering pillars of ice and yawning crevasses. Steep switchbacks cut across delicate snow bridges as Clint and I watch each other gingerly sidestep along these gaping crevasses. Though the tracks and wands give us direction through this maze, the travel remains strict, no-fall terrain at all times. We know what can happen when you make a whoopsie in there, and we tried to avoid it. Every now and then, an occasional boom of collapsing seracs rumbles deep, deep in the guts of the icefall, and our whole time going through it, Clint remained exceptionally patient with me as I bumble-fucked my way through this track. We crested the top of the icefall into the big glacial bowl, and that, that was a mild relief. We had survived the icefall with minimal bullshit going through, but we're not entirely done with it. With or without the summit, we're still forced to retrace our tracks and descend the icefall on the way out. The sun was just beating down that day. It was ideal weather. We got the weather window we had been waiting for. It was reflecting off the snow and radiating through the valley. And I tossed Clint the, the stick of sunscreen that I was pretty sure would be enough for us on the trip. And he pops it out of the case and there's only a small glob left. One small glob for two dudes and a meager amount to ration over four days of full-on UV rays. So immediately, we're rationing sunscreen. We skied across the valley until we got back to the base of the apron, where we stashed our skis and, and flaked our ropes into climbing mode. Immediately, we sink down to our knees in the snow as we post hole towards the Bergschrund. And with... The deep breath, we, uh, we take our first steps onto the mountain. The same bulletproof ice unfolds for a few pitches, and, and then we break through the cornice ridge. Clint takes the lead and plunges a tool on either side of the ridge and straddles this sharp, snowy blade, much, much sharper than uh, what it was last year. He drapes a rope on either side of the arete should either of us blow it. And as soon as I run out of rope, I start climbing. I, I step out and follow his tracks along this sharp, snowy spine. Simul climbing, I, I hump one move of progress at a time along this snowy arete. The ropes would occasionally saw through these crazy cornices and would create nasty rope drag for Clint and, and cause me to pause and seesaw the rope through these snowy snags. The ropes would just tear through these cornice scoops and pop off refrigerator-sized blocks and send them barreling into the valley below on, on either side. Uninterrupted, we simul-climbed throughout the day and until I round a corner and find Clint belaying in a snowy alcove. A granite roof protects us from wind and creates a large, flat tent pad beneath it. We bust out the tent, melt snow, and settle into the bivy.
last year we had fired past this spot and burned out because of it. This time around, we take advantage of it and enjoy the most comfortable bivy of the entire route. We rest well that night. A full eight hours of sleep makes a hell of a difference compared to our blitz last year. In the morning, we shove our frosty bags back into our packs and in the final moments of having some amount of flat ground. We step out of the bivy ledge and immediate exposure tugs at our side and we return into simulclimb mode. Snow conditions are much, much softer than last year. We post hole through the lower angled slopes and dig and scrape and bury our tools into faceted sugar snow on the steeper sections. Following Clint's tracks past a granite gendarme, I, I unclipped the rope from a bale anchor we had bashed in last May. We continue to swap blocks along the serrated ridge, simul climbing along steep cornices, rocky outcroppings, and snowy pinnacles. Looking behind me, a whole rope length away, Clint is perched on this wild snowy spire taking photos of me with Mount Foraker just scale to it all, what we were doing. Yeah, finally some perfect weather. Looking up this ridge. You can see our footprints down there. There's definitely some Acheval cowboy ret type BS on that. Our tracks going all the way through the Raman Valley, down the Raman Icefall, Foraker. Couple more nice days forecast. So hopefully it's not weather that turns us around this time. Hopefully we don't get turned around. Yeah. The whole time, the West Buttrick is soaring above us and climbing towards it. I, I'm pouring over this crazy mammoth feature from the top to bottom and it just feels like an optical illusion. Like somehow the buttress just appears to grow larger the closer we climb towards it. The snowy spine leads us to the base of the granite wall. And we, we skirt the base of the buttress, traversing steep snow, shooting for the central weakness. We find the skittery slab that marks the start of the technical mix climbing. The ramp appears to dead end, but tucked away, just out of sight, it leads to this immense corner system splitting the middle of the buttress. Clint front points up the granite slab and then disappears into the steep dihedral. He climbs until the rope runs out, and to, to save steam, we haul packs on all these difficult pitches, and the follower trails behind them. So the bags go up, and my front points scratch and skitter on the slabs. I tiptoe around the corner and suddenly move onto my tools into vertical mixed rain, and it was wild just rounding this corner Immediately, the sun just disappears and the granite walls close in as I climb into the corner system, into the guts of it. The buttress soars above with terraces and blocky pedestals protruding from the sheer walls. There's techie crack systems that split and connect steep headwalls overhead. There's alpine ice that chokes some of the crack systems and and these smears of verglass pasted onto vertical panels. It's a pretty intimidating place to be beneath, for sure. 
When I get to Clint's Belay, we peer above to this precarious sloping ledge that we cramped the tent onto last year. It looks just as miserable as what it did last time we were here. So I take off, covering familiar terrain that I had led last year, climbing a corner, excavating a crack and clipping one of our bale anchors. A blank slab guards the crack system far to the left, so I lower out, pendulum as far as I can reach out to the left. My front points scratch at the slab, searching for tiny crystals or anything to stand on, and I extend a far-reachy tool. I hook, then torque a pick into a seam and pull myself in. Another move gets my feet underneath me and I bash a pin into the crack. I continue up this seam and the farther I climb, the more and more of our precious thin pins and beaks are eaten up by this wafer-thin seam. I keep moving up it and wrestle onto a tight snowy perch. Take a deep breath and that gets me through another techie sequence over a mixed bulge. There's a, a final tension traverse that spits me onto a protected snowy band and I have just enough gear left for an anchor. I stomp a snowy stance into the snow, haul packs and belay Clint. Directly above a pitch or so marks last year's high point. It's now afternoon and we've still got a couple make or break pitches before the buttress lets up a bit. Clint arrives at the belay and wastes no time racking gear and immediately takes off, scratching at steep mixed terrain. He deviates from last year's direction, branching farther right, tackling a series of steep bulges. A sheer headwall with thin parallel cracks stands just a touch beyond vertical. It appears to be the only passage to a narrow gully cutting through roofs and steep blank headwalls above. If this route is going to go, this weakness will likely be the only way. I remain silent, just holding my breath and watching Clint in action, letting him do his thing. He methodically scratched, hooked, and torqued his way up a crack, splitting the headwall. Wide stemming was key here. Every tool placement, every piece of gear he plugged just raised my excitement and the likelihood that we might just pull this thing off. Roughly halfway through the head wall, the rope and rack are spent. He builds a hanging belay with what's left, dangling in space with the crucial puzzle piece of the west buttress directly above him. He hauls packs and pulls rope tight on my waist. The climbing is sustained and techy. Simple scratching and hooking isn't enough to climb these thin cracks. Delicate torquing side poles one after another unfold as my front points tiptoe on shallow edges and cam sideways in these thin splitter cracks. Beneath my crampons, a broken glacier cracks and spills into the Kahiltna. The exposure below and the uncertainty above made this pitch one of the wildest positions I have ever found myself in the mountains. Climbing around Pax and Clint, I clip into the hanging belay. A flared, singer-sized crack splits the headwall directly above. To the right of this initial finger crack, numerous thin cracks parallel one another. Like pages in a book, these seams are stacked alongside one another, offering thoughtful movement, but with ample opportunities for bomber cams and stoppers. 
We assume there's a gully leading to friendlier, broken terrain just beyond this crux pitch. If we can put the rope up right here, right now, this line will likely go. But it's also getting late. Here soon, we really need to locate a bivy before it gets too cold and we've run out of options to settle in for the night. So I sort the rack, nod at Clint, and make the first move off the anchor. Finally, the real climbing begins. It's been a ton of burly crap, so better get to it. On boy. Here we go. Sick. My picks torque and cam into the finger-sized crack while my front points skitter for purchase. Just something, anything to stand on. I am definitely up in Clint's business, moving off the belay. My front points claw around him, and I manipulate and twist my body to avoid stepping on him. Shift my hips far to the right, and my tools scratch and scritter down the crack, and they sharply catch. I start to fumble to plug a cam from this precarious position, and it's just, it's fruitless. I, I fight, I whittle, and I finally give up on the cam. Again, my front points shear, scratch and skitter around Clint. They find brief purchase on a small edge, just enough to take the weight off my arms, if only for just one short moment. So I stand up and shift my weight, and I mentally prepare to just make the next move. Just think all I need to do is bust through this section and I can plug a cam right above. And suddenly, the sound of my picks scraping granite just screeches down the crack and my tools shear from their cam position. Instantly, I drop below Clint and the hanging belay, nearly missing him with my crampons. The anchor holds, but I still feel ashamed. That fall totally had the potential to rip the anchor, sending us free falling all the way down the glacier and would have killed us both, for sure. And you can call it hubris or desperation in that sequence, in that moment when I gave up on the cam and just tried to fire it. But either way, whatever it was, it definitely sat with us at that hanging belay for a solid moment until I regained the composure and had to go back which is always worse when you have to go back after a fall like that, after any big fall. But this time around, all my pretentious ethics went out the window. I just grabbed the anchor, aided, French freed, pushed, plugged, forced in a cam, and French freed my way from the belay until I moved past the cruxy bulge and into those layered parallel cracks. I continued moving, torquing, twisting, and tapping my picks until they stuck into the crack systems. My front points continued to scratch at crystals and stand and cam into cracks. I found decent gear throughout the entire pitch, and I plugged the cams deep to make them work after the tech gear sequences. The crack system peters out, and I finally swing into snow. I throw a high foot and mantle onto a snowy ledge. Relief. <laughs> Up to the right, a narrow gully filled with moderate alpine ice splits the overhung granite wall surrounding us.
Clint pulls onto the narrow stance and we quickly exchange gear and excited looks. Though it doesn't last long, it was a really inspiring moment, just knowing what we were standing above. He blasts up the goalie, wasting little time searching for gear, and you can just feel a chilly, clear night is starting to settle in. A full rope length away, Clint emerges from the goalie and is spit onto a sheer pedestal capped with snow sticking out of the middle of the buttress. The ledge is barely large enough for the both of us when I get up to it. After stomping a flat stance into the snow, our tent corners hover out into space with some couple thousand feet of air dropping below the tent nylon. Tired, hungry, relieved, we crawl into the second bivy. All right. Oh, sweet, sweet, sweet salvation. Home. Oh, 12 hours of climbing today. And we are above the crux, or what we think is the crux. And uh, man, a lot of hard climbing. And even better yet, clear skies and a sick video. It's going to be great. I can actually sleep. It's protected up above. It's 10 o'clock. We had some like scary little clouds come in today, but then they went away. And now it's just perfectly gorgeous. Twilight just saturated the sky indigo. You know, that color that is just so, so uniquely Alaskan. And a bright full moon illuminated the whole valley below and shimmered across the snow and ice-plastered peaks out to the west. That full moon would later be the impetus to the route name, which we did not know at the time. Being inside of the tent, it feels safe and secure, but as soon as you peek out of the small door, there's just an abyss of ice and sky, and it just whirled my head with vertigo, hanging out in that tent with Clint, and, you know, scooping up snow outside to melt water and looking down, thinking, holy shit, we are out there. And these, uh, these wispy clouds were just lapping along the ridge that we climbed and, and up at Fork or far in the distance. And it really gave a sense of the distance that we had already traveled. I could only think that far. I didn't want to think about how much more we had to go. <laughs> yeah, that night, sleep came easy, complemented by fatigue. I shivered myself awake a few times throughout the night on an already really snug perch. Each time I wake, I find myself closer and closer to Clint, just trying to use him like, like a little space heater. Attempting to cut weight, I, I brought a down quilt and was feeling as though I would have preferred the extra pound or two right now for a sleeping bag and I, I was pretty envious of Clint's big puffy sleeping bag throughout every single bivy. The next morning I shiver myself awake. <laughs> Clint wakes, we melt snow and break camp. All of yesterday's uh, 
you can call it anxiety, I suppose, <laughs> of uh, if we would just be able to get through as replaced with excitement. Just being pretty confident that today the terrain becomes more forgiving. And tonight we'll probably stand on the summit plateau. I think today we'll probably top out on the buttress and continue high up onto the plateau. See about ticking off a summit or three. Yeah. Let's see. Out. The only reasonable passage from our pedestal is a really sharp traverse leading far out to the right. Above it, an overhanging headwall protrudes, forcing this airy catwalk along delicately stacked granite fins jutting from snow and ice. Below is some couple thousand feet of air dropping into the broken glacier. The headwall blocks the sun and my view of the terrain to come. I shiver, stomp, and swing my arms to get blood flowing as Clint leads into uncharted terrain on the upper buttress. Once we make this traverse, we're committed to topping out this thing. Flakes and ice spiral into the abyss as, as Clint dislodges these granite Jenga blocks. The full 70 meters of rope slithers away from our perch, and I begin to gingerly tiptoe in his tracks. These blocks and fins shift as I test placements for my picks and front points. And a few times I find myself uncomfortably laughing at some of Clint's contrived gear placements that are attaching us to the mountain. After this super delicate traverse, I breathe a sigh of relief and just feel a wave of excitement, knowing that we made it across and peering up into a short runnel of ice into this broken terrain that was promised in these photos. Above are stacked quality pitches of headwalls, dihedrals, and narrow runnels of alpine ice. Every single pitch punctuated with bands of snow and ice. A gigantic granite sail marks the apex of the buttress and the rim of the summit plateau. It's the finish line for the technical climbing within eyesight. I know we can do this. I feel like it's going to go. Long, high-quality mixed pitches and ice runners unfold one after another. The train is broken and much friendlier and more enjoyable. Well, just easier, a little less heady than yesterday. The upper buttress offers numerous options for high-quality climbing. Choose your own adventure route finding. Weaving through blocks and, and punching up a dihedral, I look ahead. One more long pitch to a final rock outcropping, marking the top of Mount Hunter's West Buttress. Clint takes the final lead of the technical climbing, beginning with a stout, overhung hand-fist crack that bulges directly off the belay stance. Snow and ice shrapnel rains down as Clint excavates the crack with his ice tool. He pulls the bulge, goes out of sight, and just charges towards the top of the buttress. Meter after meter of rope passes through my gloves until it runs out. I begin simul climbing very carefully through the cruxy overhung crack, making sure to not blow it. I pull over the boulder problem to a narrow runnel of alpine ice 
and gaze up to the final rock. A wave of relief washes over me, and I just cannot contain my excitement as I follow, just making all sorts of whoops and giggles and fuck yeahs with every single swing and kick all the way up to Clint, beaming down on me from the top of the West Buttress. Yeah, dude! Out to the plateau. End of the technical difficulties on the West Buttress. Oh, Hunter. Disbelief and excitement surge and power me through a pitch of moderate snow and ice as I move from the buttress and take my first step onto Mount Hunter Summit Plateau. After three days, we stand on flat ground. Some couple thousand feet roll and drop below us down to the Kahiltna and into the Raman Valley. Behind the summit plateau almost resembles a barren ice cap. Flat, wind-scoured snow spreads a couple miles behind us, split here and there with rolling cornices dangling over broad crevasses. The south summit rises from the plateau a mile or so of post tolling away. Immediately, our boots break through a wind crust. Every step, we sink to our shins. Although the travel is monotonous, the sun keeps us motivated and keeps us pushing forward. As we slog closer and closer to the south summit, strong headwinds nip at our exposed, chapped faces. It almost feels like we're marching through Antarctica. Every step seems to get us no closer than the last. The closer we get to the summit, the harsher the winds howl, and the wind chill lashes at these small bits of exposed skin on our faces and just zaps the life out of our camera batteries. Hours later, we probe around the Bergschrund 800 feet below the south summit. We stomp a pad and settle in for the coldest, wettest bivy yet. Shivering wakes me throughout the night. I don't truly sleep. I just drift in and out of a haze until more shivers make me stir around my pathetic wet quilt. Thoughts of when we'll move again, when the sun will shine, when the night will be over just stir in my head. At last, Clint shuffles and breaks the silence. It's time to summit. All my socks are frozen. Pins and needles prick my feet as I force my swollen feet back into boots. And again, we trudge into the wind. We skirt the base of the south summit and it spits us below some 800 feet of snow, ice, and seracs. Our packs thud and we, we drop and stash them below a car-sized chunk of ice. We then quest up the icy pyramid, simul climbing through snow and ice and treading lightly over chain snow bridges. Each bench 
surprises me. Somehow, there is still more and more and more above. A broad crevasse guards the final sheet of alpine ice below the summit. Clint finds a precarious snowy wedge filling in the void, and he gingerly lunges across and burrows through the snow onto the other side. Traversing a moderate but wildly exposed sheet of alpine ice is the final obstacle. Charging through the ice, Clint blasts through the corniced ridge and takes his first steps onto the south summit. I follow in his tracks and pick holes, breaking through the ridge line and rolling onto the summit with Clint just beaming down at me. There's waves of mountains and glaciers lapping all around us. It is truly a spectacular place. We have only a moment to be here and to make it count. So I pull out a Ziploc baggie from my jacket and Clint just smiles and takes a deep breath as he watches me empty Callie's ashes into my glove. I squeeze them tight one last time and let go and let the wind carry it into one of her favorite places in the whole world. There is a huge, huge wave that just rocks me all the way to the core, just thinking that I had carried her through all of that. And in doing so, I felt like I had just made Callie really, really fucking proud. Powerful is all Clint needed to say, and we just felt the rest. Well, thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of August's story as I did, and I hope you can apply some of his alpine wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. To learn more about August and Clint's adventure on Full Moon Fever, I'll leave some links to stories and articles in the show notes. If you enjoy The Fernline, make sure and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big thanks to my Patreon supporters and the Fernline sponsors over the years, the Alaska Rock Gym, and the Hoarding Marmot. If you want to support the creation of the Fernline, head on over to thefernline.com, where you can find links to Patreon, make a donation, buy a t-shirt, or check out some of my music. Until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, we'll catch you next time on the Fernline. Every day,
Changing right by your side.